0: If you were here a few weeks ago, you might have noticed that I mentioned that it seems to me, and it may not be true, but it seems to me that these days I hear certain phrases like, ugh, people, more than I ever have before my life. Or if you haven't heard, ugh, people, maybe you've heard, people are the worst, or simply, I hate people. Anybody heard that in the last couple weeks? Anybody said that in the last couple weeks? Anybody just at least have thought that? And if you have kids, you have to be careful. You might have noticed I've got a little one, but I've got a little bit bigger little one too. And if you say, oh, people are the worst, and then get in the car, you'll notice that he might also say, people are the worst. So <laughs> it's going around. So I, I wonder... You know, a lot of people say I hate people. I wondered for myself. And am I a people hater? Like, do I hate people? I certainly feel that way sometimes because I'm a human being. I think that's part of being alive is to have moments like that. But I'm also a big believer in science. Uh, so when I asked myself this question, I wanted a scientific answer. I didn't just want my gut feeling. So I turned to a scientific source, AllTheTests.com. <laughs> you know that site? Yeah. You can learn the truth about everything on that site. In eight simple questions, you can learn everything. So I took a quiz to find out if I truly hate people. And this was the lead-in to the quiz. Uh, It's a paragraph, but I I think it sort of sets the frame. It says, do you hate people? Are you in a constant state of annoyance due to the stupidity of others? When some random teeny bopper opens his or her mouth with what he or she thinks is insight, this is sort of dating the person who wrote this, Uh, Do you cringe in anticipation of what may very well be the new stupidest thing you've ever heard? (laughs) Do you overhear comments that people make when you're out in public and wish it was socially acceptable to shake them and harangue them with brutal, biting insults because what they just said was so ridiculous that there's really no other way? And if you answered yes to any of these, or if you're even a little bit curious to see if you could, come on down. And see what a misanthrope you really are. You may surprise yourself. So that's the lead to the quiz that I took. Um, and there are probably eight questions that reveal the truth about me. I only really have time to read you three. So, but I think this will give you the gist. The gist, although it is kind of a jest too. So, when someone here's a question number one. You can answer this for yourself. There's going to be four options you choose. When someone rides by you on a skateboard, you want to a Give them a high five. Skaters rule. (laughs) B. Reminisce about your old skateboarding days. After all, everyone skated until they were about eight. (laughs) C. Reminisce on your old skateboarding days while rolling your eyes and making a rude comment about how everyone stopped riding their skateboard around eight. Or D. Clothesline that freak. (laughs) Now, these are not my thoughts. These are to help you understand who you are, okay? So these are not my words either. All right. Question number two. This is a little longer question. It takes a little context here. So you're sitting in a movie, and an actor says something funny inducing a lot of laughter from the crowd. In an attempt to feel like he is funny, someone repeats that quote for the audience to hear just after it has occurred on the screen to get some more laughs out of the crowd. You think... A, make a rude, sarcastic comment about that person, thus humiliating him and getting a laugh of your own in the process. Okay? B, wish people would be more considerate when you're trying to hear the movie. C, try to find out who it is and start a fight with him in the parking lot for trying to ruin your movie experience. D, dude, I always do that. People love it. All right, question three, and I promise this is the last one. Um, You and a friend are watching a suspenseful movie. This sounds like a real situation to me. That you have already seen, but the person you are with has not. The person continually asks you what is going to happen next, even though his or her question will be answered in the very next scene. You, A, politely tell them that they will see for themselves, trying your best not to sound as annoyed as you are. B, answer that person's questions as they come. I hate it when I don't know what's going to happen next, too. What a kind person. (laughs) C, tell them that if they don't shut up, you will never watch a movie with them again, then proceed to keep your promise if they ask another question. (laughs) D, look them straight in the eye, tell them every single thing that's going to happen in the movie from the point where you're watching right now to the credits, turn the movie off, Kick them out of your place so that you can organize your usually your usual round of drinking buddies. The night is young. Okay. So I think there are five more questions that I answered to find the truth about myself, and this is what came up post-test. My score, it says. Not only do you love people, but you are one of those people that everyone hates. (laughs) Do us all a favor and move to Alaska. You suck. That's what it said. Verbatim. So, now, what I want you to notice about this cheesy quiz is that this test here is written to make the point that the author really doesn't like people, right? That's sort of the underlying joke. It's like, I hate people. That's the whole thing. And, if you, and then you get insulted in the end, right? So, but isn't it kind of ironic That if you hate people so much, you would write something hoping that people read it? Isn't that the way it is? You know, when people disappoint us the most, who do we want to know about it? Other people. Our boyfriend breaks up with us. What do we need? A friend to tell us what a jerk he is. Our girlfriend dumps us, and we post it on Facebook to lots of people what a jerk she is. Our boss takes credit for our work. What do we need? A friend to take us out for a night on the town. <laughs> Even if we hold ourselves away and get as far away from people as we possibly can, what do we want? Someone to notice. Hey, you've been holed away. Where have you been? We have a love-hate relationship with people. We want them to be there for us, but they let us down. We have ideas of what community should be and do. So we dive into relationships, and then people don't be and do what they're supposed to. We are interchangeably optimistic and let down by people. 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 How do we make sense out of this? Well, one thing that I think that I've discovered is that we want connection, but not just that. We want deep connection. We want deep relationships. So this week, as we start a new series about relationships, which will be a major theme for this entire ministry year, we're going to look at how people, us, how we are messy, right? But here's the thing, and this is what I hope you leave here believing, or at least considering, and that is that the mess, and this is what I'm going to try and argue, is good for you. It's good for you. That's what we're going to talk about. If you know that it's coming, if you know that it's coming, you can experience deep, fulfilling relationships that are worth the mess. So I'm not going to teach you how to avoid the mess or pretend that the mess doesn't really exist or tell you that, hey, if you just put Jesus in the center, which is a big theme in our church, the mess will go away. What I'm actually going to tell you is, yes, it's going to be messy, but if you have the right expectations, you can find great fulfillment in relationships. Here's a little bit more of what I'm thinking. So here behind me is a typical approach that I think we often have to relationship. I think usually we start naive or idealistic about what relationships can be, how they can operate in our lives. And when that doesn't pan out, we become cynical, right? And then we choose to isolate ourselves. I think this is how uh, it normally happens, right? That's a typical approach. What I'm going to argue today is this. This I'm calling, boldly, (laughs) a scriptural approach, as if I get to name what the scriptural approach is. But it's certainly a scriptural approach, and that's this. If we start hopeful, and there's a difference between being hopeful and naive, Hopeful people understand it's going to be messy. It's not going to be perfect. If we start hopeful, what we can experience is gratitude. And that can lead us also to actually seeing the redemption of the very mess itself. All right, does that sound interesting? All right, so the difference maker here, and what we're going to look at today is what happens in the middle. So you have these little arrows here. That's where the mess happens, all right? So we're going to look at that little in-between part between the descriptors of what comes before and after. And what I'm suggesting is that relationships, actually, this is where they happen. And that they happen in the mess, and the messy mixture of good and bad is what is known in the Bible as the already. That's the good. That's where things are working. They're clicking all cylinders, And the not yet, that's where it gets messy and things break down. Naive people understand the already part. That's the fun and easy stuff. That's when you're laughing. That's when your friend brings you soup when you were sick and you really needed it. That's when you get that call at just the right moment. And I think what you'll experience here, I hope, is like 90-95% that, right? But what naive people don't Expect or what they forget is the not yet part in the middle, and they fall prey to cynicism when the middle hits, and they often end up choosing isolation as a result. So, hopeful people expect the mess. They may not love it, but they expect it and see the opportunities in it, and they're prepared in a different way to experience different results, results that I'm arguing today are worth fighting for. So... What do hopeful people expect in the middle, where that little arrow is, that makes all the difference and that naive people don't? Let's read our passage for today. This is Ephesians chapter 4, the first six verses, and then picking up again in verse 11. This is Paul. He's an early church starter, did a lot of startup congregation, wrote big chunks of the Christian scriptures. He's writing a letter to one of the churches he started. And he says, as a prisoner in the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So, what hopeful people expect in the middle of relationships that makes the difference? First, I think you can see this in this passage. I think Paul is trying to set up his readers for this. We expect, hopefully I'm in that category, that we are guaranteed not yet. Verse 2 says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, I just want to point out, before we go any further, that there is a certain realism about this take on community that Paul isn't trying to say to the people who are reading, Man, this is all going to be wonderful all the time. So, before he gets to any of the good stuff, and there's lots of good stuff that follows, lots of reasons that it's worth being connected to other people in this passage. But before he gets to anything like that, he says, Let's not pretend. This is going to be messy. And here's how you can tell he's thinking that. He says, Be humble, be patient, bear with one another, fight for unity. All of these encouragements communicate that Paul expects it's going to be difficult sometimes. And although he's going to go on and say all these wonderful things that you can experience through community, he starts by saying, look, bear with one another. Be patient. Fight for unity. You seen this? The main thrust of the passage is all the great benefits. But Paul is preparing people first. He's building their expectations. And I'm really hoping that everyone here after this series will be encouraged to really invest more in the people around you. I'm hoping that you will take more risks to be vulnerable even. I'm hoping that you will commit to people when they're vulnerable to you. I hope that you'll find a way to be a part of a small group, which is a practical way that we help provide for community in our church. I'm hoping that we experience all the good things this passage talks about, but I don't want you to be naive. When you show up to that first meeting of a small group, and maybe you're not a part of one, even if it's like the most wonderful experience of your life, the Holy Spirit falls on you, you see visions, you laugh with people, you know, you, the food is good. It's like, it's awesome. I still want you to know, hey, yes, 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 yes. But have the right expectations. That room is still full of people who are imperfect and in progress. Here's what I can promise you. This is not what you expected for a sermon that's pitching getting to know people better. I can promise you this. Our relationships will never work according to plan. Our relationships will never live up to our expectations. Our relationships will always grapple with some kind of difficulty. And our relationships will always need to improve. And I don't want to spend too much time belaboring any of these expectations in detail, except to say that relationships always involve at least two people. And people are awesome. I see a lot of awesome people here that I know, and some new people that I would love to meet. But we're also flawed, insecure, sometimes selfish. And when we get together, eventually at some point, there'll be some sort of letdown. There'll be disappointment. There'll be conflict. People won't do what we want them to do. And no relationship ever arrives at the point of perfection. And here's the second thing. Here's a big reason why that doesn't happen. And that is we need to change. Paul writes, So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith, and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we'll no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves. I don't know if you noticed it, but Paul just called his readers immature and infants. Did you see that? In a very nice way, in a hopeful way, but he just said, you're immature and you're infants. And his promise was that his readers could become mature, And no longer be infants. Meaning that those reading, including us, are immature infants as we read. Now that may sound demeaning, but I'm actually convinced that it's the perspective that we need to have and that we need to fight to keep. And we tend to think that our weaknesses, listen to this, we tend to think that our weaknesses are the things that wreak havoc in community but not primarily. Another time Paul's writing, he says this, but Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And here's what I think this means. The most dangerous aspects of your relationships is not your weakness. It's your delusions of strength. Acknowledging our weakness allows room for the power of God to work in our relationships. Thinking that we're strong that we're together, that we're mature, is what breaks down the exchange of grace in relationships. And that's why it just really seems like the mess is actually good for us. Even the brokenness sometimes. The selfishness sometimes. Not that we want to be broken or selfish. But if We're humble enough to admit those things. It creates space for the power of God to work in our relationships, for there to be an exchange of grace. People who are perfect don't need grace. They can't give it if they think they're perfect, because first of all, they're deluded. Communities don't need perfect people. They just need people who can be just a little bit humble, admit their need, admit when they're wrong, expect that sometimes... I need to grow, and that I've probably made some mistakes here. So I don't see this as a put-down. But just an indicator that Paul and that God wants more for you than you'd actually imagined. The mess is good. It's not, but it is. We don't want to be messy. We don't want to hurt people. But every time something like that happens, if we're hopeful, if we engage with each other, it can be redeemed. And we can see the power of God working. There's a guy who's famous for writing um, fantasy for children named C.S. Lewis, who's also a famous Christian thinker, who tried to describe this process like this. He said, imagine yourself as a living house. And God comes, and he comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? And the explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, Putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. And you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. Our houses, oh my gosh, how many shows are there on TV that I could choose from? It started with Extreme Makeover. We watch Fixer Upper now. Lots of them. <laughs> you know, um,. The picture of who we are, even when we think we've arrived, is so much less than what could be if we were open to our own weakness and created that space for God to come in and really do a remodel. And not seeing ourselves as houses that just need a new paint of coat, a new coat of paint. But man, we need some walls knocked out. We could be so much more but it's connected to admitting our need and our weakness so our weaknesses aren't the problem they're merely the opportunities for God's grace to work in community and the hard thing is that sometimes we've, we lose touch with this but humility is the breeding ground for hope which we talked about earlier that leads to gratitude pride is the fertile ground for cynicism third thing The not yet makes experiencing the already even sweeter. The not yet, the weaknesses, the letdowns, makes experiencing the already when you do have those times when people are there for you, when you're there for them. When there's laughter, when there's tears even sweeter. And here's one reason why. The mass is what creates intimacy or depth in relationship. Don't let intimacy scare you off. If you see yourself as kind of a tough person and being intimate sounds weird, just think of it as where the, the depth comes. So we're not a mile wide and an inch deep. Notice in verse 15, Paul writes, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Notice the language here. One body, ligaments, joined together, held together. This is connection. This is a depth of connection and interdependence that I think we're actually looking for in relationships, what we hope for, what we've been let down because we haven't experienced. So here's a little circle that I want to put in your mind because we're going to come back to this uh, a few times over the next couple weeks. And that's this. I said the mess creates intimacy. Well, how does that happen? Well, first, there's a level of vulnerability that has to exist for any relationship to go deeper than where it is right now. We share something about ourselves that we don't share all the time or with everyone. Or people see a part of ourselves that not everyone sees. That's vulnerability. It doesn't always have to be your deepest, darkest sin. It's just like something that not everyone else sees or would know. Now, when that vulnerability is met with commitment, where the person who sees that part of you doesn't run the other direction, or maybe even when you failed them a little bit, they offer you grace, then all of a sudden, who you really are, because, see, someone has just seen who you really are, just a little bit or a lot, is built up, you're built up, you're encouraged and that starts a really nice circle, vulnerability leading to commitment that affirms who you really are, that when, when that happens, this thing called trust happens. When someone sticks with you, even when they see the worst part of you or when you're not strong and encourages and builds up who you are, then you, right here, a little bit of trust. Is born and when you have trust then you're able to be even a little bit more vulnerable and share a little bit more of yourself and when the people around you stick with you all of a sudden who you are gotta move my head is built up again you trust more that's what you're looking for in relationships is people you can trust not that they're perfect not that they do this commitment thing exactly right all the time but it's affirming who you are and so you can be known a little bit more The deep relationships that we say are formed here in the middle, right in the middle of the mess, when our weaknesses are on full display, display, that's what vulnerability is, and our friends run towards us instead of away from us. That's when you start to experience the relationships that I know you really want. Because I talk to a lot of people, and usually the people I talk to have no community. They might have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Uh, Maybe a relationship with a parent that's going well, maybe not. But almost no one I talk to feels like they have great friends. Or just connection to community. So here's my closing argument for you. And that's this. That what we see in this passage, when it says um, this, until we all reach the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and, becoming mature, attain... Two, and this is what I put out out to you as hope. The whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That means everything God has for you. The full measure of the fullness of Christ. That sounds good. What this is saying is that connection to other people is a part of that. And if we don't have it, there's something about what God has for your life that you will never experience. If we can reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Fulfillment. Fulfillment surpasses disappointment. I know a lot of you have experienced disappointment in relationships. That's part of what leads to cynicism. What I'm saying is, yes, (laughs) you will be disappointed, but that can actually be part of you experiencing fulfillment in life that you can find the power of God in the mess. I've lived this on both sides. You know, in my life, I've been a mentor and I've been a mentee. You know, as the mentee, um, there was one particular person, a significant mentor in my life. 20 plus years, we were connected. And a situation came up in my life where I knew I was going to make a decision that he wasn't going to agree with. So I made a mistake. Instead of talking to him about it up front, early on, I talked to him about it after everything had already been decided. And the truth is, the decision I made, I felt like, was the one that God was leading me to. I still do. But I was afraid of disappointing him, so I didn't tell him early on. And it hurt him. And I own that, and I apologized But I left that conversation not knowing whether we would ever connect again. And it's still unresolved. I got unfriended from Facebook, which sounds cheesy, but actually strangely powerful when it happens to you. And so I'm living through a very not-yet situation in my life with a key relationship. I've also been the mentor and just as all of this was happening, I also got an email from an old friend. And we worked together very closely in the past, but it all fell apart. I never knew why, but it hurt. And I tried to reach out to this, 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 this guy for in a million different ways, every way I could think of, and always got no response. But when he emailed me, he said, I want to get together, and we met up, and he apologized. And he asked for forgiveness. It had been years. And in just a couple weeks from then, I found myself at a big send-off party for him, praying for him and wishing him well. It was sweet. It was an already moment. It was one of those redemptive moments that I'm trying to tell you can happen, and we should hope and pray for. But in some senses, it's even more sweet because of the not-yet moments in my life fulfillment happens in a life of both already and not yet. And right now, even in the middle of my life, I'm learning how to live and grow through both. And I think that God is using both to teach me about the life that he lived and we're called to live to. A life where community let him down in some incredible ways, but also changed the world in the end. And I want to change life. There are things in my life I'm not happy about. I don't want to be the same person that I am today, a year from now. And I need you for that. I have some maturing to do. I need you for that. I'm still infantile in some ways. I need you for that. I want to change life. So let's be hopeful, not naive. Not idealistic, hopeful. And let's actually dig into the mess while we're enjoying the already moments because there are lots of those. And I still believe that the already moments are like 90, 95% of the deal, but the 5% can scare us off. So let me ask you this. Where are you making intentional effort to connect to other people? because this is where that fullness or fulfillment has the potential to happen. When was the last time you were a part of a smaller group of people that really knew each other or were working on getting to know each other? How can you make that happen again, or how can you try again? You know, next week, we're announcing our fall lineup of small groups. Small groups full of very imperfect people who love each other, are trying to do their best. Small groups, if you don't know, there are community groups that meet in people's homes usually uh, once a week. Start thinking now about how you can make room in your life to be a part of one of those. Because I think it will be worth it. Let's pray. Jesus. Jesus. Man, you experienced the already in the net and the not yet in some super profound ways. But in the Bible, speaking of you, it says that for the joy set before you, the redemption set before you, you endured the cross. And that was the literal cross, but I think it was also the disappointments that you felt along the way. It was worth it for you. And you changed the world through it. Father, I pray for each person here who's been disappointed in the past. Who relationships haven't panned out the way they wanted. I pray for extra grace for them. I pray even as I pray right now as we sing songs to God, you would come and just be with them and say, yeah, I know that wasn't so good, was it? And I pray somehow through that process, new hope would be born. So that every person in this room can have the opportunity to experience the full measure of your purposes in our lives. I want that. We want that. God, let our communities this year become even more renewed than they have in the past. May we learn how to love each other and care for each other, offer each other grace in ways we never had before so that these things that Paul's encouraging us to, they would be real in our lives and we could share them with other people. In Jesus' name, amen.